Hey crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking, and I've got a question for you. How about that Discovery, huh? Huh? Star Trek Discovery, the first new Trek series in over a decade, is finally airing on TV. That is, new TV on CBS All Access. But why am I telling you that? You've already seen it, and you undoubtedly have opinions. Opinions that we want you to share with us on social media, at Facebook and Twitter, at the username EISTPod. What you may not know is that along with the launch of the Discovery, we have launched a brand new Discovery recap and discussion show called Star Trek Discoverage, which you can hear live every Sunday night after Star Trek Discovery airs. Just follow us on Twitter or on Facebook to get a link to the live show every Sunday night, or you can listen straight from our Spreaker show page where our podcast is hosted. Every week, I and a panel of distinguished guests cover the episode that's just aired, and we talk about what we've seen, what we think we're going to see, and whether or not Lieutenant Seru is the best new character. Spoiler, he is. He totally is. If you can't join us live, don't worry. Retract your threat ganglia. Every episode of the show will be available in the regular Apple Podcast or Google or Stitcher feed or on our YouTube channel for the Just Enough Trope Network. The original plan was to offer old shows as a subscriber benefit to our Patreons, but what the hell? The most contentious issue surrounding Discovery seems to be that people are having to pay for something that they usually get for free, and we don't want to contribute to that heartache. So all of our Star Trek Discoverage episodes will be available for free. Consider it a Star Trek The Next Generation 30th anniversary present. Or is the 30th anniversary Pearl? Huh. Anyway, come catch some pearls of wisdom, nailed it, from Star Trek authors, screenwriters, and superfans every Sunday night at 8.30 p.m. Central, right here on Star Trek Discoverage. And if you want to join the conversation yourself, and we're waiting to receive your transmission, you can tweet to us at EISTpod and use the hashtag Discoverage. Our Patreon is still open for business at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod, where you can find all kinds of great content like updates on the show, my DS9 rewatch mini episodes, my Klingon Christmas Carol rehearsal diary, and more. Join our crew at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. On the subject of Star Trek Discovery, I talk a little bit about Discovery with today's guest, Jeffrey Lang, and in discussing today's selection, we specifically examine the idea of characters doing something bad, that is, uh, making the right choice for the wrong reasons. And though this episode was recorded early in this year, it turned out to be a little bit prescient, because if you're watching Star Trek Discovery, you know that's exactly what the new show is exploring. So keep listening to hear us wishing for the show that we essentially ended up getting. One more thing, in two weeks it'll be our last episode of Enterprising Individuals for this season, featuring some of the most memorable moments from season two. Yeah, the uh, shades are going to get a little gray, and we're going to clip show it a little bit, a little bit. But this toxin can only be defeated by funny and insightful moments from the past. So tune in, it's going to be a good time. And with that, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide I wanna know what you're feeling Tell me what's on your mind Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Caliban, and when it comes to my enjoyment of the 1991 Bruce Willis action comedy film Hudson Hawk, I too will accept the judgment of history. I'm joined on this episode by Jeffrey Lang, author of several Star Trek novels, including the Voyager novel Cohesion, the TNG novel Immortal Coil, and the DS9 two-part novel The Left Hand of Destiny, which he wrote with DS9 series star J.G. Hertzler. He's also had Trek short stories published in anthology form, and he's a Leo. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks. Hudson Hawk, really. <laughs> really. Is this the Hudson Hawk podcast now? Um, <laughs> we sure. can do that. Let's just go there. Uh, <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll take a sidetrack. Uh, uh, have you seen it? Really? <laughs> <laughs> there is. I have a lot of friends who are uh, movie people and not just you know, like movie makers. Mm -hmm. And they have, it, it's probably therapeutic for them, but they have love uh, or a love of really bad movies. Mm. And I'm like, why do you like that? And they're like, well, you know, there's just a, th 
at some point a movie goes from bad into like wonderfully bad. Mm-hmm. And I never understood that, but I think perhaps that's what Hudson Hawk is for me. Like so many bad decisions were made mm-hmm. and yet it's so clear that, you know, for whatever's going on, Bruce Willis is having a hell of a time. Uh, he was having a great time. Uh, yeah. That was, uh, he, he that got was, to sing and <laughs> that, yeah. Uh, no, that was a movie that came out at a period in my life when, um, I saw literally everything that came out. Yeah, yeah, me too. And so it was like, big release, fine, we're going to go to the movies, we're going to go see this. <laughs> and it was just, it was. It went from being this kind of, whoa, whoa, whoa what? <laughs> to, oh, oh, it's this. Oh, okay, fine. Settle in. Yeah. Don't, you know, just go with it it was it, yeah. it was horrible <laughs> oh yeah it, you yeah you're certainly assaulted uh, by the film but after a while it becomes more like a like a tickle assault than anything worse yeah than yeah it's probably something worth going uh, no actually no it's not worth going back and seeing <laughs> um what do you want to talk about today we'll be talking about the wounded the 12th episode of the fourth season of star trek the next generation uh, it's an episode that although the producer's probably didn't know it at the time, it ends up introducing many elements to Trek that would form the basis for future episodes and indeed future series in the uh, Star Mm. Trek canon. Mm -hmm. And the episode, it deals with some markedly dark themes like revenge and racism and discrimination, war crimes, post-traumatic stress, and Irish cuisine. And the way that (laughs) Star Trek, uh, a perennially optimistic franchise, deals with those themes is something that we'll discuss over the course of the show. But first, let's talk about your backstory. How did you become a Star Trek fan? I'm old. Uh, (laughs) I'm older than probably... I I know most of the guys, the men and women who are uh, right now the kind of core Star Trek authors. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the upper edge of that age range. So I'm one of the few people, maybe me and Greg Cox oh, sure. and Peter David, probably we're the ones who actually saw Star Trek, the original series, first run. So I was, um, I've told this story on a couple of occasions. I remember very, very clearly some Friday night, my older brother, my, my older brother, Mike, who's like five years older than I am, mm-hmm. putting some show on and I hid behind. I hear people tell this story about Doctor Who a lot, but Star Trek in the third season, especially because I, I remember the third season was like they had weird monsters. They were right. creatures. Yeah. And I remember hiding behind the banister of our staircase from as far <laughs> away from the TV as you could get. Right. But not being able to tear myself away because Uh there was just, there was this strange stuff going on. It was amazing. It was fascinating. I I think I probably was like seven years old, six or seven years old, something like that. Um, And then it disappeared. It went away. Yeah. Um, And then a few years later, when I was in my my early teens, it started showing up on. what we then called UHF. <laughs> yes. And um, I became, an, I, I mean, I, it was like every night at, I think we used to have supper in my house like at 5, 5, 5.30. And I was just one of those kids that would be like, because I had to get to the TV <laughs> by 6 o'clock when, right. when it would come on. And right. watched the whole thing all the way through. And then realized, oh, it, it, it ends, but it doesn't really end, but it kind of ends. But then it starts over again, and then it was one of those shows that you could watch the second or the third or the fourth time through, and you would pick up new bits of business and character development. And, and it just felt like it was something that was created by a you know specific person or people and they had a really clear idea of what it was they wanted to do, which was unlike anything else that was on at the time. I mean, they were good. Not to say there weren't good shows on in the 60s and, you know, early 70s. There were. But this was clearly something that was, uh, I, you know, and now we know it. Of course, it is true. It was a person's vision. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was really gripping, and it just spoke to me. So that, yeah. that's the origin, yeah. I think that 
Yeah, and you say that they knew what they wanted. I, I think that's kind of true. I'm not sure they always knew what they wanted, but mm-hmm. I, I think they knew what they didn't want. Yes. I think that. Yeah. I, oh, I like that. I really like that. I think you're absolutely oh, you. right. I think they knew what they didn't want. They didn't want um, Irwin Allen, you know, vegetable men. Let me be careful. To be clear, I loved Irwin Allen. Uh. <laughs> I loved those shows. But, um, you know, it's, it, this is a whole different other kind of thing. And um, they, they, it, 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 there was something about it that spoke to me. I think like a lot of people that I felt like those characters, I'm quoting Philip J. Fry here, they became my friends. I have uh, heard that story, too, about, you know, kids hiding behind the couch watching Doctor Who or whatever. And I agree. Um, I didn't see these episodes in the original run, but I saw them pretty soon after in syndication. And the the neural parasites from Operation Annihilate. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, my me. God. Yes. And they're just little flappy, like placental, <laughs> placental pancakes, you know. But for some reason, that was just really, really spooky and weird to me. Yeah, no, no. And, and they took over your brain and you didn't get better. Right. And yeah. No. It was. They were terrifying. Um, the Gorn was terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there were a handful of other monsters that they did that were pretty scary, but they were just as good at doing like concepts that were frightening. Um, you know, people mm-hmm. taking over your brain. Oh. Oh. The one I remember. The one that really scared me. Like just terrified me. The wow. I'm probably. I'm not going to remember the title. But the one where they could remove all the water from your body and you just became this um, uh, uh, geometric solid right. you could hold in your hand and that guy crushed it. Okay, that person is dead. I think it was the female crew member too, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, it was like, whoa, they're going to they're gonna kill, they're gonna a, kill a, a woman. Yeah. 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 That scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Now, and the wounded, and the good, getting back to the wounded, the wounded is one of those ones that was, the original series kind of had it went back and forth and back and forth between light and dark adventure, you know, kind of some preachy um, storylines that were a little bit on the dark side. And then um, Next Generation came along, which was overall, at least for the first three seasons, a pretty optimistic show. I feel like the wounded is kind of the tipping point uh, I, I would I would have to go back and look at the whole schedule of season four and kind of say where did where did things start like going? But see, it, this one really feels to me like the one of the first ones where they said this universe is a little bit darker than we have intimated up until now. They 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 explained there was a war. There was a huge right. war. Right, right. Um, and up until this point in time, the only time you have any sense of there being any kind of conflict was. Well, there were some things with Klingons, and yeah, we did a little bit of, you know, back and forth over the neutral zone with the Romulans, and of course the Borg. That, don't take that away, but that was a completely, right. <laughs> completely outside force. This is the first time they introduced a um, the concept of there was this war with this very muddled mythology. Not mythology. What am I saying? Uh, ideology. Why are we doing this? We're doing this because of what? I mean, this is this is the you know Arab-Israeli war. This is the um, you know we're mucking around in things that we don't completely understand what the repercussions of everything are, but we're right. in it and we're committed. And yeah, and yeah I, I I think this is like the point where um, the Star Trek universe that followed up into Deep Space Nine, of course, where things get really gray, you know, shades of gray everywhere. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Oh, don't say shades of gray on TV. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> can you, can you talk about, uh, can you talk about working with JG uh, Hertzler? Um, other than that, he's a lovely man, um, <laughs> who has the best voice ever. Yeah. Um, he and I, uh, the working on the Klingon, on the Left Hand of Destiny was a really fun but very stressful project. Uh, mm-hmm. This is now um, 15 years ago for me when I was a younger and healthier man. <laughs> um, uh, it, was a, it was a project that our editor, Marco Palmieri, I'm sure that's a name you've heard on more than one occasion, of course. Um, brought to me, he said, I've been working with JG on this 
John, his first name is, is John. Right, uh, right. We've been working on this and he, we, he did a lot of work. He did a tremendous amount of work on it. And then he was basically, you know, unable to devote any more attention to it. And what it really needed was um, shaping. So we talked about it a couple of times and he, and we, you know, he, he wrote this thing almost like it was a screenplay. He's a playwright. Did you know that? That's that. So yeah, yeah. He's a playwright and he wrote the thing almost like it was a play. And I can imagine as a play, it would have been tremendous, but a play is not a novel. So what I had to do was take this thing that he had written and turn it from being in this one format into another format. Um, and he was nothing but supportive after. I mean, you know, I really kind of took this thing and said, okay, I'm going over here now and I'm going to basically rewrite it <laughs> and I'm going to keep, right. I'm going to keep certain things that you've done. I'm going to discard certain things that you've done and I'm going to try and like layer in like the connective tissue. That's the word I was trying to think of the connective right. tissue that changes this from being a, 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 a play into a novel. It was very Shakespearean in tone <laughs> sure. uh, because that's John and I, I, I realized I felt like it needed to have a little bit more humanity. And, and I say that because he was writing it from the perspective of being a Klingon. Right. And I felt like, no, you can't write. I mean, it's just too, it's too big. It's too operatic. There, that's the word. It was operatic. Klingon operatic, yes. huge. Everything, everything was at 11 and I felt like what I needed to do was kind of bring it down to, like, you know, somewhere modulated. Yes, yes, let's have our 11 moments, but let's also have our, like, lower, quieter moments. And what I think I did more than anything, and I, I hope he wouldn't disagree with me, is I changed his – he had introduced the Ferengi character. There's a, there's a, uh, a, a Ferengi character who becomes his um, – his name's Far. And when I, when I said, when we talked about it, I said, okay, what you have here is you have the story of um, Don Quixote, but you don't have a Sancho Panza. You need that. And he was like, oh, God, yes. That's what I introduced. I brought this character into the story who serves as his, uh, what's the knight have? What does the knight have? A, a squire. Yes. He needed a squire. He needed somebody who would, like, talk to him and bring him, bring uh, Martok down to like a level we, the readers, could appreciate and understand. And that's what I, sure. I, I feel like I, that was my big contribution to it. Um, and yeah, it was fun. He was a great guy. Uh, we did a reading together one time at a, <laughs> at a convention, uh, at one of the uh, shore leave conventions. And Okay. That was one of like that, that one of the high points of my life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we get started, I have to ask whether you're keeping up on uh, Ira Stephen Bear's DS9 documentary. If if you're looking forward to that, I I recently found out about it. I'm very excited to find out what those guys had planned for season eight. That's tremendous. Yeah. Um, having been back, been, been on the, you know, kind of editorial team the editorial team the author team when we were kind of scoping out season eight um right i did abyss and um and then and then the the um left hand of destiny that was kind of our like well this is what season eight would be like if we did it and sure. so i want to hear what they say <laughs> right right yeah <laughs> i would also love to hear if they had any idea of what we were doing because probably they would just go no no that wouldn't be that no that's not it <laughs> that's not, yeah that's not it but we're talking about next generation yeah, yeah, yeah. Show. Sorry, yeah. uh it's the wounded as we said it's the 12th episode of the fourth season first aired january 28th 1991 the teleplay here is by jerry taylor supervising producer and later executive producer on tng of course the co-creator of star trek voyager and she has many writing credits across the uh, franchise this is one of 17 scripts that she wrote or contributed to on next generation the story is by Stuart charno sarah charno and cy shermack this is shermack's only series credit 
But uh, Stuart and uh, Sarah wrote the TNG episodes New Ground and Ethics. And Stuart is also an actor who has appeared on many TV shows. And fun fact, played the killer in my favorite episode of The X-Files, Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. Really? That's amazing. Oh, that's that makes me uh, thank you for okay if, my day has been made <laughs> if you look him up yeah he's 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 one of those guys he's one of those um uh, i know that guy you know, yeah, one of those yeah. guys and he's definitely been in a lot of stuff he's very distinctive looking and when i thought oh, that name sounds familiar i looked it up and sure enough yeah he's the the bellboy or whoever it was uh, in that episode um, I, ha- I as long as we're talking about i know that guy um, sure. bob gunton the guy who plays ben maxwell he's one Absolutely, of those guys yeah. he's he has been in Everything. Yeah, probably most famously uh, in Shawshank Redemption, um, but also he was recently in the um, Daredevil show as uh, or Leland Owsley as well. So yeah, he's been he pops mm-hmm. up everywhere. Yeah, and, and a fine actor. He, he, oh, yeah, he's great. good in everything he does. Yeah. This episode was directed by Chip Chalmers, who directed four episodes of TNG and two of DS9, and he was also a first AD on twelve episodes of TNG. The star date for this episode is four 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 two nine point six. And your assignment, Jeff, if you can, is to give me a twenty-five word synopsis of the wounded. Enterprise is called in to investigate what appears to be a unprovoked attack by another starship, encounters Cardassians for the first time, discovers that the captain of the Phoenix may be at fault. I'm way over 25 words here. Um, (laughs) And the captain was the former commander of uh, Miles O'Brien, and this is I mean, this is really the key thing. Sorry, I know I'm way over 25 words. The key thing is this is the first time you really begin. This is the first time you find out anything about O'Brien as a character. That's right, and that is why it's my, one of my favorite episodes. Whenever people are trying to hit a 25 word target, they drop suddenly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and, uh, have, <laughs> right. have you ever seen? Okay, I, uh, this made me laugh because I saw a, a digression, and you know Will Arnett. He was on this BBC program uh, over the week, and they do this thing that they do this challenge where they have uh, a person do a phone call, like a prank phone call. They have (laughs) to speak to somebody on on the phone, and every sentence has to begin with a different, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And and he does it. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's brilliant he's okay, an improv yeah. guy and he's just like right. you can just see his wheels going okay I can't say this I can't say this Okay, oh alright and he does this so yes 25 words or less I could never do it if I had to in a million <laughs> I think I've seen something like that on um, Whose Line Is It Anyway yes. I think the British yes, yes, one yes, yes. well some interesting facts from the memory banks for this episode uh, this episode uses the song The Minstrel Boy which uh, was originally, it was actually in the film The Man Who Would Be King. Uh, the use of it was suggested by Michael Piller. It was originally written to commemorate those who died in the Irish Rebellion of 1798. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize this, but that same motif comes back again in the final episode of it DS9, does, yeah. in one of O'Brien's final yeah. scenes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, There were several scenes that were filmed but cut from the final edit of this episode. Um, there's nothing really illuminating in them. I think they were justifiably cut. But they were discovered by a Canadian collector who had a copy of an early work print of the episode. Ooh. And he was able to get them to CBS for inclusion in the season four Blu-ray bonus features. Oh. And it's just, I mean, they just cut them for runtime. It's a little more like Riker talks to a guy and, you know, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. This episode, of course, features the introduction of the Cardassians, who would go on to be major antagonists on DS9. Uh, Marco Limo plays Gull Masset in the episode. He would go on to play series villain Gull Dukat on Deep Space Nine. With facial hair. (laughs) Yeah, right, I know, (laughs) which is so strange. Uh, And the Cardassians' neck ridges and, I guess, general look are reportedly based on his distinctive neck muscles Mm -hmm. and uh, physiognomy, which Mm -hmm. earned him the nickname The Neck on the set. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yes, of course, the facial hair that he supports is absent from future depictions of the Cardassians. As is ever, their, ever, yeah. As is yeah. their head, their headgear, which looks kind of like a like a retainer, like a nighttime yeah. retainer. Yeah, yeah. I guess Cardassian helmet is horrible. Yeah, the helmet's not good. <laughs> uh, Cardassian orthodontistry has improved due to cultural exchange, I guess, in the future. <laughs> uh, Alimo also played the first Romulan, or one of the first Romulans we see on TNG, uh, Tabak, in the episode "The Neutral Zone." He's the guy that goes, "We are back." Oh right! Oh, I'd forgotten that. 
And the designer of the Cardassians, Michael Westmore, based their look on an abstract painting he saw of a woman with a spoon on her head. So, mystery solved. There you go. Oh, okay. I'd they like to see this painting. Heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Oh, man. And this episode is the first appearance of the Nebula-class ship as well as the Galor-class Cardassian ship. Do you, do you have a favorite uh, Starfleet ship design? Yes, I do. And it is this – I can't remember the name of the design, but it is the design of the Phoenix and also the Reliant. The, um, the Miranda. Is that Miranda what it class. is? Yeah. yeah. Reliant like Star Trek Two, right? Uh yeah oh I'm sorry I'm on I'm on memory alpha right now and it says here the phoenix was a nebula class oh okay okay now now that doesn't mean that the uh, the reliant wasn't a what did you say Miranda uh, Miranda yeah I think they're very they're similar in concept but one uses the old uh, saucer section and the nebula is a, sort of the shortened one that uses the new oh, the, the the oh one. right 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 well right. then if I were going to have to choose between those I would have to say the reliant I always found that that um, sort of smaller compact um, what would you call it it's like a destroyer as yeah. opposed to a you know the the Enterprise, which is a cruiser or a, you know an aircraft, like a frigate. Yeah, yes, right. right. I, I always found that little compact. Now, of course, I also have a very very deep affection for um, the Defiant, but there was only one of those. Was there was there ever 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 another oh, ship that had that configuration? I don't remember. Again, we're digging digging down into uh, later episodes. I you know the Defiant, of course, was a prototype. Um, I think they did eventually, maybe not on screen, but you know in canon. Uh, have a production sort of model of it, but yeah, it was pretty unique for what it was. But it was great in those um, <clears throat> those latter episodes of Deep Space Nine where they have those huge um, battle sequences where you would have all these saucer shaped things flying through Constitution class, and you know, da, da, da. and you'd have just this one weirdo little matchbox <laughs> looking ship right, that right. would just weave in and out of things. That was they they did. That, that, that was so wonderful. Yeah, it was neat. It yeah. was it was a different way to sort of look at the starship battles on the show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, the wounded. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Star Trek is, uh, I think, by its nature and intention, it's a very positive show. But I'm always fascinated by the episodes in which it tries to explore deeper and darker issues. And I mean, in, in ways that are a little more sophisticated than, oh, these guys have black on one side of their face and white on the other, and then mm. vice versa. And I think those episodes, the darker ones, often resonate more strongly with the fan base. Mm-hmm. And, and DS9 had a bunch of these um, episodes dealing with Kira's past as a partisan fighter against the Cardassians. Mm-hmm. Um, Trek, as a rule, doesn't deal much with sexual assault, but episodes like TNG's Man of the People is a good analog for that. Mm. Um, genocide is dealt with in Voyager's Memorial and the episode Remember as well. And I think this episode is sort of a riff on Heart of Darkness. Um, I mean, that's from Taylor herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you think that Trek as a property, I mean, in which a society of enlightened beings has solved most of their problems, can it really effectively explore complex social issues? If you accept the concept that it is a story about enlightened beings, actually, I think the, 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 the strength of the latter Trek, and I'm talking particularly about the, the back half of TNG and DS, and then all of DS9, yeah. is it's the story of the conflict between people who consider themselves to be enlightened beings right. and those who maybe aren't quite so enlightened or think that the idea of others considering themselves enlightened beings is ridiculous or um, they have the, 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 that there's great hubris in their believing sure. that they are enlightened. Right. Right. And, and and I think in particular the idea that um, – again, we're in talking about DS9, but I think this is also <laughs> in TNG. It applies, yeah. You have um, the prophets kind of at the top of that scale, and then you have um, the – I'm sorry, the changelings. And I don't remember what they called themselves. Apologies for that. And then the Federation and then the Romulans and the Klingons and, and all these different – and the Cardassians, all these different layers. And they all consider themselves to be enlightened and – they think the others are, well, others. They are not enlightened. And it's the conflict between those different groups. TNG, they didn't play with this quite as much. Though, arguably, I think, 
even in the you know the most important um, conflicts in TNG between um, the Federation and the Q and the Federation and the Borg, mm-hmm. what are those what are those conflicts? They're points of view. They yeah, are they're ideological. People, yeah. They are ideological. They believe, oh, I have I have the correct interpretation of reality, <laughs> and you are a poor benighted soul, and we must explain this to you. Sure. That's such an interesting way to look at it, too. They always say that you know the best v- movie villain or TV villain never thinks that he's wrong. He thinks that he's right. Mm-hmm. And so we're humans watching this show, so that's our point of view. And so we have to follow, it, in large part, our human characters. But if our Cardassian was watching the show, then maybe the show would be very different. And we'd yeah. be following something completely different. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think the novels, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, you know, a novel guy. Yeah. But I think the novels, especially... Um, Luna McCormick's novels have done a great job of expressing that point of view about the Cardassians. You know, they consider themselves to be treated unfairly and they have had to deal with these all kinds of challenges and their responses to those challenges have been to do things that they felt were appropriate and right, including things that from our perspective are slavery. I mean, repression. (laughs) Right. But from their perspective, are like, no, 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 no. These people, you know, we're taking care of them. You know, they had some bad ideas. We're going to educate them, blah, blah, blah. I mean, all the kinds of things that oppressors say to themselves at some point or another. No, your point taken. No oppressor has ever said, oh, we're, we're evil. <laughs> we're just gonna, <laughs> are you we know, the baddies? Right, yeah, right. No, no, we're, we're, we're good. We're going to take care of these folks. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Roddenberry always maintained that, you know, humans don't fight each other in the future. They don't have conflict. Uh, in this episode, it, it comes near the end of his tenure on the show and, and yeah. his life in general. You'd have to think that he would have had a problem with it if he was more involved with the production at that point. I'm sure he would have. And he would have also flattened it out and made it less nuanced. And and I think that's a, I think that is the great virtue of this episode. Uh-huh. Maxwell isn't wrong, but he's not right either. Do you think that he's, I mean, this is maybe an easy question to answer, but do you think that he's justified? I mean, we learn at the end of the episode that no matter what his methods, he was probably right uh, about what Um, was going on. I I think in this instance, this is one of those times where they used Picard really well. Picard could be a self-righteous prick sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, especially early on in the show. Yeah. But they began to wield him much more effectively. I mean, obviously, the writers were figuring things out and they were getting a sense of what their actors and, you know, everybody could do. Yeah. Um, but the, I think the thing that they do really well with him here is say, Maxwell, you're not wrong, but the way you did it, you've lost us. You, 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 we cannot defend you. Right. <laughs> Um, and there, and, and there were so many other ways you could have done this. Yeah, that's yeah. that's really the point of the story. There were so many other ways he could have done this, where he would have been the hero. But because of the damage, the wound, let's just pound that nail right on the head that, <laughs> yes. that Maxwell has. When the opportunity came for him to, you know, express his. You know, the PTSD, I think that's a, you said that earlier. You said that, that's, yeah, I think that's definitely sure. what this story is about. Yeah. Uh, a person of, of, of upstanding character and good moral, you know, I mean, you know, I, I wrote a whole goddamn book about this guy. I love him, but right. he did the wrong thing. And I, I agree that, uh, well, I think that it's a, in the episode, it's a little bit uh, underwritten, like, you spoke before about hitting a nail on the head. I don't think they really have to beat it into you what he's going through. And they do, you know, talk about his, his the loss of his family and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the PTSD, but it's, if there was something a little more just for the character, um, he, cause he comes off as so petty, um, at times, like he, mm-hmm. he insults and taunts Picard. I mean, in his best insult is that Picard is a, a fool, a foolish fool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would have liked and his, him to be, and his, sm- and his office smells of, like a bureaucrat. Yeah, yeah a bureaucracy. What's yeah, that whiff yeah. of bureaucracy? Yeah. 
But if he was just like a really charismatic leader and, and had a really good case and Picard still has to take him in just because of these principles, like you said, like this is the wrong way, right or wrong, you're doing this the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would have been a little more convinced. Yeah. Uh, no, even, it, though, it, even though even though Ganton is working his ass off, you know, to, yeah. to make it work. Yeah. No, it's not it's not a five star episode. It is not because they don't give um, Maxwell quite the nuance that I think he really might have. I think that they wanted to, mm-hmm. but they do give him these interactions with um, um, O'Brien, right? which give him um, a humanity, but also a nostalgia. You know, they have, they have this shared moment of, am I remembering correctly that when the two of them are sitting and talking, they get kind of hammered. When he first steps off the transporter platform, he's like, oh, my God, it's Miles O'Brien. He gives him the little crack about the Blarney Stone and all that. Mm-hmm. And then later on, when O'Brien beams above the Phoenix, they do kind of – and this is before Saving Private Ryan, but they do kind of a – remember that guy? Uh, what was his name? Yeah, S- yeah. Stinky or whatever. Stinky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and he you – know, of course, he's dead, and so they kind of bond over that. But then they drink. I don't think so. There's a, there's a part where he drinks. He's in tent forward and a Cardassian comes in and they kind of share a drink That's together. what I'm thinking of. That's what I'm thinking of. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I, but I, I was just remembering that these two guys kind of cast aside a bit of the rank thing. You know, he's a captain. Oh, I'm just a chief. Right. And they, and they have this intimacy that I felt like really humanized Maxwell. Now, Again, we're talking about Bob Gunton, who is this guy who's real warmth and um, you know charm to him that yeah. cuts through a lot of the eh, not so great writing. Um, if you felt like in his interactions with Picard, he comes across as a bit of a um, strident. I agree, and I think they could have done a lot better because clearly his crew believes in him. Except we don't really see where where is his crew in this episode? Like yeah, we never well, really I, see anybody else. They, this is only season four. They didn't have that much money. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> O'Brien beams aboard and he just walks into the captain's ready room, and at no point nobody went, uh, "Who who is this guy?" <laughs> well, that was one of the things I tried to address in the novel is uh, that his crew absolutely, you know, faithfully had this, um, you know, faith in him. Right. Uh, that they uh, that they they just he was very charismatic, not because he was a um, like Picard. I mean, Picard, Picard has a warmth to him. But really, why do you follow Picard? Because Picard just is like this exemplar. He's he's everything you want your captain to be. Yeah. Maxwell is much more of a he's just a guy. You know, he's a good guy. He's a, right. just a solid guy. Um, I, and, and again, maybe I'm projecting a bit much, too much of my own person impression. No, I think that's there. I think that's all implied. It's a, uh, you'd follow him into hell, that kind of guy. Yeah. yeah. He's just, because he's going to go, he's going to go first. Right. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. He's, 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 I mean, of the captains that they portrayed on TNG from the Federation, this is something I was thinking about recently. Okay. How many of them did you like? Ooh boy, Ronnie Cox as Jellico was a real hard ass too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep. Um, Fraser Crane was all right, <laughs> I guess. Uh, for that two seconds that he was there, for two sure. seconds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was all right. Um, Rachel Garrett from uh, Yesterday's Enterprise was definitely. Was she made me want to see the Enterprise C show. Well, that's true. Oh, I'm sorry, Rachel Garrett. Yeah, 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 yeah. yes. But otherwise, uh, yeah, they're they're often put um, in sort of stark relief against. Um, a Picard, yeah. yeah. Or, or Riker yeah. is the captain. So, yeah. you know, Maxwell is one of those, one of the handful that you kind of went, okay, yeah, I can see why this guy is a captain and why people would follow him. And which is, which is what he is, it, which, which is why it's a tragedy because he is a tragic character. He, yeah. is, he is a, and think about that. How many episodes of a you know i mean whatever how many hundreds of episodes of star trek there are how many tragic characters are there not that many so this is a a fine piece of writing that these people did and um it was yeah it's one of it's why it's one of my favorites 
It's also Chief O'Brien's first real episode you know, that focuses on him. Mm-hmm. Um, DS9 would go on to explore his past with the Cardassians, but it, I agree that it's a fine piece of writing. Here's another piece of criticism. Um, I think that the episode lets him off kind of easy. Um, you have Maxwell, as we've said, he's consumed by vengeance. Um, but at least in this episode, it's it's enough for O'Brien to have a drink in 10 forward with one of the Cardassians. And he's a little sad, but he's pretty much on board at the end to talk Maxwell out of what's going on. Um, and it feels like the little moments, like where Kiko asks him about it, or we see Troy having a clear empathic reaction to the emotions that she senses he's feeling. It seems like we'd get something a little more, mm-hmm. a little stronger in the mm-hmm. script before mm-hm. the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. And, uh, more than him just icing those guys on the turbo lift. Agreed. I totally agree. We and don't want to I, see him go as far as Maxwell does, but at least to f- sort of feel that same thing and then turn around and make the, make the right choice. Cause he's our hero. Yeah. And, and the only thing I would say to that is, is it was 1991. <laughs> okay. Uh, and you didn't necessarily have that kind of courage in writing secondary characters i think i I think i think if you i mean again this is all speculation but if you (laughs) wrote this story in an episode of a you know a netflix series or uh you know any well hopefully maybe we'll see something like this in discovery in the not too distant future if you saw something like this now yes they would give a secondary well i mean i think at this point saying O'Brien is a secondary character character as a compliment, tertiary character to give them that kind of moment, that kind of outburst. Um, speaking as somebody who saw all this stuff first run, um, it would have been inappropriate. It would have mm-hmm. felt like a, a turn, like, Oh, the actor is, you know, doing something. It would have, I mean, I mean TNG, was a fairly restrained show. Mm-hmm. The actors were not doing big things right, most of right. the time. So I get uh, maybe I'm being a little defensive here. I don't know if they could have <laughs> let I don't know if they could have let O'Brien have that kind of a moment. But I agree with you, it would have been a better story if he had. I, I think you make a good argument. If this was Battlestar Galactica, like the new one, yes. he would have pushed the button that blew yes. them up, and then yes. you have to live with it for yes. the next three seasons. Yes, 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 yes. It's funny. Let's let's raise a glass to Richard Hatch. Oh, of course, yes. Yeah, he passed away recently. Uh, yes. I, I was just, I just, I just found out about that recently, and you know, it got me thinking about, um, you know, when it was when it was good. That show was really good. It, oh yeah, it, it did stuff. No, nothing has done. That's the show. That's the show I want Discovery to be. Which, uh, you know, being helmed and created, or at least um, rebooted by a guy that was kind of fed up with Trek. Mm-hmm. I think it's sort of an answer to Trek in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see if Trek answers back or just appropriates um, what they did, sort of taking it to a, a sort of different place. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's it's tough to hang an episode on O'Brien, at least early on. Um, Cole Meany, he's a he's a great and he's an expressive actor, mm-hmm. um, even though he plays a pretty unflappable and reserved character. And I think I feel like it's tough to peel back the layers of O'Brien, at least initially. When I initially heard that they were way way back in the day when they were moving him to DS Nine, I thought, oh great, well DS Nine will have a transporter chief. And of course they took that character and did much, much more um, mm-hmm. than they had ever done with a tertiary character, as you said on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, also, he's he was tactical officer for Maxwell, and now he's transporter chief? Did he do something wrong? Did he get busted down or something? Um, Seems like a step down. This is my impression. Um, he, was a, he was a tactical chief on a relatively small ship. The Rutledge was, by the standards of what you know we think of as starships, just a little it was a it was a, a scout ship so my impression has always been that the story with o- O'Brien was that he you know because of the the things that he went through on on what was it oh god what was the name of the planet Setlak or set oh the battle of blah 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 they talk about it Setlak 3 Setlak 3 thank you very good um that he was he basically reappraised what he wanted to do and the fact that he was able to save the lives of some of his colleagues because he was able to fix a transporter kind right. of made him go 
there's another career path. I don't want to be the guy that's incinerating people. Maybe I can be the guy who's beaming I, people. <laughs> I can yeah. save people, or you know, and and then and then you know, on on TNG, he was introduced as this guy who ran the transporter, and blah 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 blah. And then I right. think it was one of those things where the producers and the writers went, "Wait a minute, this guy's actually a really good actor." And yeah, you know, they elevated him from there. You know, so trying to negotiate, you know, the the um, what was going on behind the scenes. And then, um, you know, bringing that into alignment with the path of the character. Eh, right. It doesn't always work. Right. <laughs> um, did you ever, um, on a, as, a, as a side note, there was a few years ago, I can't remember who did it, there was a series of um, cartoons, comic strips, about Chief O'Brien as this, like, really sad character who all he ever did was stand in the um, transporter room and transport. And he had this weird, interesting inner life. But all it was just these static um, panel-to-panel things of O'Brien standing behind the uh, transporter panel and interesting things going on all around him. And he would just be like, okay, right. transporting <laughs> you now. Yeah. Does this ring it, a bell? It's called Chief O'Brien at work. It's by yes! an artist named John Adams. Yeah. Yes, that. It's hilarious. Yeah. Like like Wesley and the Traveler show up and they've just been to another galaxy and they're yes! taking off again and he's just like, okay, great. Yes. I loved that. That was so funny. Yeah, I learned from that too that I never really thought of it this way, but um, Colmini has a very um, caricaturable face, yeah, or at does. least a, a yeah. face that you could represent in art, and instantly you go, "Up, oh, that's the guy. That's him." Okay. You don't need to be a great artist to capture Colmini's face. No. <laughs> right. Doodle, doodle, hair. Yes. Got it. I think this is the first look into Miles and Keiko's married lives since they got married in Data's Day. Mm-hmm. What's your opinion of Keiko? There was some program that I was watching, and the actress who played Keiko was in a scene, and she was a lawyer. I can't even imagine what it was. And I thought, oh, it's her. Oh, she's actually animated in this. This, this is she's a pretty good actress, huh? Yeah. Who'd have thunk? Huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm putting everybody on trial. Uh, this show it looks like. Uh, do you think the show? What do you think about the show's reported, you know, lack of strong female characters? Or I, I guess that's a cliched term, but it's problem sort of writing for female characters. Oh man. Um... I mean, this is Jerry Taylor is putting this together here. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. Now, I never really thought about the in, in the sense of male versus female characters. I mean, honestly, on TNG, there's really only two good characters. There's Picard and there's Data. Mm. So are, are we going to slam them for doing bad female characters? Because they... I mean, Riker has no discernible personality besides the fact that he plays the trombone. Yeah, and he doesn't like his dad. And he doesn't like his dad. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at least he gets storylines. You know, yeah. He, he okay. goes out and does stuff. Yeah, that's true. Whereas Keiko has to deal with Miles' socks, and she starts a school later on on, on DS9. Um, and, uh, and, and, the, and, and the interesting and the thing is, is that she's introduced as being this kind of interesting character she's a botanist she's actually got a a career right and that gets sort of subsumed for a while though i think in their defense when they got her over to ds9 they did get to the point where they were like we can't keep making this woman you know like have babies and (laughs) socks she had their marriage goes through a stressful period yeah i mean so you know they don't they don't completely um, ignore you know the complexities, but I yeah I agree they did not serve her well. Um, I'm trying to think though you know were there any female characters on TNG that they did a good job with? Certainly not Troy. I mean she had her moments. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate that when they specifically turned their attention to her, the scripts for her shows were so bad like any troy show you know it's probably not going to be a very good script yeah but... not, neither were the dr crusher episodes. oh no definitely and, not and i really and, and this is the thing i always really liked that i 
the character. I mean, Gates McFadden was a really engaging actor, and um, I think she always really. And I'm not saying anything about um, Troy. I'm sorry, I can't. Uh, Marina Sirtis. Thank you. Um, I think she also. I mean, she did a fine job with what they gave her, but they just didn't give them very much. I think Keiko was a great idea for a character. I think the idea of marrying or bringing together this um, Celtic character and a uh, uh, Asian woman was really interesting, and the conflicts that they had were fine, but they were kind of surface level. Oh, I'm going to make you a lamb stew like my mother made. Oh, I'm going to give you kelp. Oh, but that's what fish eat. I mean, come on. (laughs) You're living in the 23rd. 24, 23, whatever, whatever you've eaten weirder things than kelp. Yeah. And again, just looking at just in terms of structure, um, from a, from a writer's perspective, you get two little bits with them. You think that you would come back at least one more time. Um, they just sort of fly off at the end with uh, Maxwell and Chains. You think O'Brien would come back home and maybe they're having another dinner. And then he's like, I never told you about what happened on uh, yeah. like three or whatever. Exactly. There were, there well, we were many opportunities there for a little more rounding off of what their marriage was like, especially since they spent so much time on it in the very beginning. I mean, that, that, that early scene, that's like four or five minutes. That's a significant portion of a story. That, right. you know, whatever, whatever, what, 45, 48 minutes, something like that. You know, other than it's showing O'Brien as being kind of a dick. <laughs> what, is it, what are they doing there? Yes, he, yeah. he likes Irish food. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, okay, all right, let's talk about something fun and uh, give the episode a break uh, a little bit. Of course, the Cardassians first appear in this episode. And what I love just right off the bat about them is that they are not, uh, even in this early appearance, one-note aliens. Uh, they don't come on and they have one particular mm-hmm. sort of habit or, or thing Honor. that characterizes them. Or logic or yeah. <laughs> yes yeah. right or they love money or yeah right. right they have a lot of depth but there's something just a little i mean they're a lot like humans in a way but there's something a little off it's like that neighbor on your street you never really talk to he comes and goes at weird hours and he just seems a bit off you mm-hmm. know I mean, not bad necessarily but it's like what's that guy's deal what's that guy's deal yeah that's that's well observed um i agree with you they did do they they hit on something right there in that first episode mm-hmm. that made them alien, but not in a way that you felt like there was a one-note, mono-dimensional, if that's a word. I If it isn't, I... It is now. It is now. Um, like, we're only going to define an entire species. Is that right? Yeah, species. They, they are a species, sure. Right, sure. By a single attribute. Yeah. Um. Uh, that scene in the in the bar uh, with those guys, where you know O'Brien's just like, you know, we're guy, you know, we're grunts, you know, we're all we're all grunts here. We're having a drink, you know. I don't like you. I mean, I know you're not necessarily bad people, but I don't like you. Right. Um, yeah. Is actually, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, the whole thing about uh, Roddenberry and his and his involvement in. There was no way he would have let something like that go through because he would never allow a human say to an alien, I don't like you. That's true, been... although I, I can think of another uh, drinking scene in The oh. Trouble of Tribbles where uh, Scotty, he is pushed, but he is eventually pushed to uh, take a swing in a, at, uh, at a Klingon. Good point. And this kind of diffuses that because you think maybe, we'll, maybe O'Brien's going to put the glass through the guy's face, but instead he's just kind of like, yeah, I don't. I don't like what I've become because of you. And I'll I don't like what I've become. Yeah, you know, that, that's, that's even more to the point. I don't like what I've become because of you. Yeah. Uh, well, it's all about engineers. Engineers are the ones who do things that, the, you know, other people won't do. They'll say the things that other people won't say. Scott, I guess so. somebody, uh, O'Brien will kind of go, yeah. Uh, uh, it's always the engineers. So take that, take that as a, a plotting, um, a plot device that, uh, we now all have to avoid forever and ever. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Uh, you mentioned uh, the facial hair on Golmaset before. Ugh. He's got these little mutton it, chops. It's spectacular. And they don't connect to anything. Nothing. Um, no. Neither physically or even con- conceptually. Um, 
and it's something that never comes back. And I, my little headcanon for that is that uh, maybe post-war Cardassia had a hipster phase mm-hmm. like we're experiencing now. Mm-hmm. We, we don't know how old uh, Masset is, but Cardassians live a little longer than humans. So maybe in addition to being a captain, he's got a little artisan pet food business or something. Sure. And everybody's got to have a side hustle these days. Uh, he makes, he makes um, artisanal. Uh, bespoke like bourbon in his bathroom. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, yes. Something like that. No, my uh, my head cannon for that has always been Michael Westmore had like bought a few too many um, like uh, hair facial hair applications, and he was like, "Oh God, if I don't use these, they're going to take them out of my budget next season. I got to figure out some." Oh, wait a minute. Wait, come here. You come here. Let's go. Let's right. go. <laughs> yeah, great. You look great. Yeah. That's it. But uh, but on the main guy though, I mean, maybe on the left hand guy, not on the actual. Well, <laughs> no. Okay. So that brings it. I think that brings your uh, uh, um, hipster thing actually brings it into sharp focus because you don't want to have the left hand or the right hand guy having the hipster facial hair. You want to have okay. the main guy. So I think we're 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 back around to your interpretation and I'm, I'm now it's my head cannon i'm i'm gonna subscribe to that it's, sure. it's what happened okay. yeah he carves uh, he carves model sunships out of uh driftwood or something oh, like that oh i like that yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. sells them in the market yeah mm-hmm. uh well did you have a um i mean we've talked extensively about the show um it's not really like a funny show but was there a favorite joke or comedy bit that you had from the episode I mean, I remember, I remember this as being one of the ones where they just sort of said, this is a serious story. We are not going to screw around with it. I mean, the, the thing I mentioned earlier about Maxwell saying that Picard's ready room smelled musty, like, yeah. like a bureaucrat's office. Right. I felt like, yeah, okay, that's fair. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think, I think the, the thing about Picard is, is that from the outside, he does look like a bureaucrat. He is a well, he kind he isn't, but he kind of looks like one. You could be deceived into believing that he is a bureaucrat. And certainly, the first captain coming after Kirk, who Kirk's chief enemy was bureaucrats. Like he hated bureaucracy. So to have somebody who's willing to be what he would call diplomatic, but someone else might call bureaucratic, um, is is a contrast there. Yeah. This isn't really like a comedy joke, but I do like how, once again, like Worf was right. He's always right. <laughs> he's, mm. He tells him at the beginning of the episode, I don't trust these guys. We should raise the shields. We should have them follow them around. And they're like, don't worry about it. Then, of course, the Cardassians shoot at them. Later on, they're trying to hack into the Enterprise's Wi-Fi. Like, n- nobody ever listens to Worf. Poor Worf. Yeah. Well, he is the alarmist. <laughs> Certainly he is. Yeah. Yes. Um you know, most of, as you say, most of the time justifiably. But think about all of those other times that they didn't do stories about living with Worf. Like, oh, that shellfish, that's very suspicious looking. I wouldn't eat that shellfish. If you ate that shellfish, I am pretty sure that you're going to get sick. Don't <laughs> eat that shellfish. I mean, can you imagine living with that guy 24-7? You're <laughs> right. only seeing like one out of 20 days of life with Worf. And most of the time, something is happening. And of course, yes, he's right because he's warning you. But he's warning you about now. There's a wet spot on the floor there. Be careful when you're standing there, Captain. Now, Captain, step around the wet spot. No, if you step on the, <laughs> you're going to slip. But you don't see the episodes. The the long, <laughs> no. yeah, and the eye rolling, the eye rolling that <laughs> God, yeah, oh, just shut up. Michael Dorn has really uh, perfected that facial expression when he says, we have to do this. And then Picard's like, okay, all right, you're fine. Mm-hmm. And then he has to do it anyway. And he's got that sort of, fine, I'll do it. Yeah. No, he suffers. <laughs> I think we've been pretty thorough. I think we've covered just about anything. But th- if there's any uh, parting shots or any last thoughts you have about the episode, now's the time. I think that this is one of the few episodes where anybody sings. And that is noteworthy. Mm-hmm. Can you think of any others? Um, there's an episode where Riker goes to a bar and the four-armed lady sings some Klingon opera for him. But none of the main characters, certainly. And they the play o- flute. Yeah, no. The only other one I can think of is um, Brent Spiner getting his song on in, was it Nemesis or? Yes, Blue Skies. Blue yes. Skies. 
and he has a very lovely voice, and I think that was fine. It was a terrible movie, but you know, <laughs> I got to hear him say, "I just, I just, I just, I think that anytime you can bring a reasonable, a a, a story worthy reason into." an episode where people sing and it makes sense is a lovely, lovely thing. Yeah, and this, I, there aren't too many others. I, I can't think of too many TV shows, period, where this has been able to been done. Um, so yeah, no, it, it's a minor note, but it is something, um, I think is, is worth mentioning and is kind of remarkable in and of itself. If they do a good job. Also the whole Irish thing, the the Maxwell O'Brien, oh, we're Irish guys. In this universe where we have been led to believe that nationalities and like kind of cultural background are not as important, Scotty notwithstanding. <laughs> right. Um, the fact that they kind of they bring that in and they say, no, 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 it is still important. People do take pride in these things. They They identify with these things. I think that's also... Um, quite lovely. So this is still, it's not, I don't think it's, like I said, I don't think it's a five-star episode, but I think it's a really strong four-star um, episode that does some things that um, I don't even know if they even did in later seasons where I know they tried to tackle strong, meaningful stories. Tough stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah. This is this is this is right up there, and I think you know. Notably, you already said this, and I think it's still important worth mentioning. It's the introduction of the Cardassians, which gave them not just in TNG but also in DS Nine some of the richest story fodder they ever had. Yeah, they they, they do great great stuff. Yeah, the world building in this um, is great because, yeah, like you said, they'll they'll come back and mind this for years to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of shows that are coming up, are you looking forward to Discovery? Um, I am contractually obligated to say so because my okay. good friend Kirsten Bear is <laughs> yes. one of the uh, co-producers. So, right, of course. If I said anything else, she would come and find me and hit me. So, yes, <laughs> duly noted. Uh, I am as well. Uh, let's talk. My space dad can beat up your space dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Um, still Kirk. Um, I mean, I kind of, I get, I get a little uh, like embarrassed about that sometimes <laughs> because i think he's kind of a you know a reactionary jingoistic you know dickhead sometimes but he has courage he has um he has a strong sense of who he is and he believes in the mission that they are yes. doing um, the other thing I think I really appreciate about him is, is that he has tremendous, uh, respect for what the, 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 he has tremendous respect for the mission of start of, of the Federation, even if though there are times where he thinks they are assholes. And I don't think that there's like a big conflict with the other captains or anything like that. Uh, I just find him to be the one who resonates the most with my kind of idea of what you want somebody who is in that kind of position of authority to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to improve on an original too. Yeah. 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 Who's yours? Uh, Kirk. Oh, okay. I've, I've talked about, I won't bore the listeners. I've talked about it on the show before, but I will say that in uh, light of this episode that we discussed, you know, we, we do want our characters to be flawed and interesting and not perfect. Mm-hmm. And it's ironic that even though Roddenberry intended the original crew of the enterprise to be sort of the perfect people with the distance of history. And you mentioned jingoism and all those things. It, the farther away we get, the more those characters become kind of flawed and outdated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can mm-hmm. look at it as a period, period piece or you can enjoy the sort of ideas that they have that they have to sort of get over and get around their manifest destiny kind of thing. Yeah. And what still works about the show, um, unlike other shows that are quote unquote dated, is that I think the characters still um, come out okay, make the right choice, um, even with the sometimes backward sexual politics they run into these races that are, you know, it's in from humanity's terms are way worse off than us. And they still kind of do the right thing. Like mm-hmm. that's, I still continue to enjoy it for those reasons. Yeah. Yeah. No. Can, yeah. A mean drop kick on that guy too. 
<laughs> yes, right. Well, come on. And the Kirk double-handed karate chop, come on. Right, give him the axe handle. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, dude, you know, what 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 alien species could stay? Oh, wait, the Gorn. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the Gorn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And probably a few others. Yeah, like six or other. <laughs> Uh, now that we've reached the end of the show, uh, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in? Ooh, um, I'm going to say bioengineering because because today I, uh, I I my day job I work with a lot of universities, oh, okay. and I had somebody come to me with a question about well. If I was going to do this, how would it be? What would be the distinction between engineering and bioengineering? And I'm thinking, well, it's got bio (laughs) in the name, (laughs) and that just has been sort of stuck in my head all day. So there you go. That's my off the top of my head. I'm going to be in bioengineering. I have no idea what that means. Sounds (laughs) great. I think you have the department all to yourself, so you can just kind of make it up. I think. There you go. I'm I'm the head of the department, so. <laughs> right. <laughs> what are the popular answers to that question? Uh, they've been all over the board. Um, I had somebody who wanted to work in turbo lift control. No. Uh, although I said, how's the jo- job going? And, of course, it has Heads its ups up and downs. Down. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, engineering, um, man, I'm trying to think now. They've kind of gone all over the map. Mm. Okay. But I don't think we've had one of those before. Very good. Very good. Well, Edson Lang, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, I hate when people ask me that because I'm <laughs> a, uh, um, what's the word I want to say? A social media agnostic? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I have a Facebook account, and I have a lot of folks you know, who've made contact with me there, but I'm not a social media person. I don't, I have a Twitter account. I don't think I've looked at it in three years. Um, (laughs) I'm always happy to hear from, you know, people through the the Facebook, but I'm, the whole, so the whole social media thing is a huge book guys, everybody. I'm talking, I'm talking to all of you right now. It's a huge time suck. <laughs> you can write or you can be on social media. I know which one I choose. There you go. That's it. Uh, but they can find your books, though, online, I'm sure. Yes, Amazon, blah, 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 blah. I'm not <laughs> books. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm just trying to help you out. <laughs> Thank you. No, no. I know I need to be better at this. But as I mentioned earlier, I'm an old guy, at least right, well, yeah. relatively speaking. And I love, I think social media is fine. It's part of you know, the world, the fabric of the universe, but. Kind of passes you by. I, I was talking to a friend the other day and we were trying to get somebody's phone number and neither of us had our phones. And we realized that we're probably the last generation, like the last people who had to remember phone numbers. Mm-hmm. Like kids today, they probably don't even, they know their own phone number, maybe. Maybe. Um, but I think that my generation sort of straddles that thing where you always knew. You know, yeah, I knew a hundred phone numbers, mm-hmm. but now I don't know any. Mm-hmm. No, no. Um, I have a, a son; he's twenty-two, uh-huh. and I asked him a couple couple days ago, "What's my phone number?" And he went, "It's in my phone." And I was like, "No, but what <laughs> right. if, if if you were at a payphone?" And he was like, "Wait, payphone?" I mean, he he knew what I meant, but it was <laughs> right. like that would never happen. In what, right. in what universe is that something that would happen? No. So, yeah, you are, you, you, you are absolutely correct. Uh, well, thanks again for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. It was a great pleasure. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. And we are signing off until the next mission, Hailing Frequencies Closed. It's on your mind.